But I want to invite you now to the fellowship around the gospel in Matthew's gospel chapter 7 is where we're going to spend our time. And this, this is a text that begins with a very familiar verse. It's a familiar section, but it's got some depth to it that I do want to point out. Um, the title of our sermon is Judge Not, But Use Judgment. Judge Not, But Use Judgment. There's a difference between um, being judgmental and having good judgment. Uh, both come from the same root word, but we have to figure out which one we are participating in. Are we being judgmental? Or are we using good judgment? And the Bible calls us to the latter, and there's deep implications for that. It's easy sometimes to, on a, a lighter note, be a little bit critical of people. There's a a newspaper that will remain um, unnamed, but in the humor section, um, speaking in terms of the, the tourists that will be coming in as we warm up and get to the summer months, it, it talked about a tourist who was standing on a, a dock with a fisherman and was looking down at the water and said, uh, you know, the tourist got off the boat and said, we're so far north, how far above sea level are we? And the fisherman said, uh, about 10 feet. Well, it's easy, it's easy to get a little critical there, um, if you'll bear with me through a second segue of humor. But, uh, but you know, there was a guy who, who wanted to impress his mother, who was very critical, but wanted to impress his mom with uh, uh, his girlfriend. And he would bring a girlfriend by, and the mom would reject and say, yeah, I don't like her. And then he would date somebody else and date somebody else. He was always trying to win his mom mom's heart with a girlfriend that he could possibly marry. And one day he just hit the wall and he went to his friend and said, what do I do? I can't impress my critical mom. And he said, I know what you do. You just uh, find her clone, find somebody that's just like her. And he did that very thing. Found a young lady with the same gait, her same walk, her same accent. They talked like her. Um, She even thought like his mother. It was amazing. So one day he circled back with his friend. His friend said, how did that go in terms of uh, the meeting with this girlfriend, the mom? He said, look, the mom loved her. It was my dad who then began to struggle with this <laughs> young lady. And joking aside, you know, it's funny, but judgmentalism is, is really a rough sin. It's a deep one. It gets our attention. Um, and one final story. So I was in seminary and I was uh, part of a class. This is now, you know, decades ago. But uh, I was in a class called Discipleship Lab, and that's a high-polluting name to say we could sit around and kind of talk and share our hearts and get in the Word together in a casual way. But the professor who was the academic dean of the school was, was going around the, the 10 of us and said, give yourself a one-word description to describe your personality, who you are, so we can get to know each other. So, you know, leadership, relational, um, I'm passionate. These are the, you know, boilerplate terms that are going around the room. It comes to year again. And year, we were mixed with national, you know, American students and then international students. This guy's from Germany, and he had a thick German accent came to him and he just looked at us with sort of the round glasses and just stared us down and said, I am critical. And we were like, whoa, okay. You know, we didn't know how to take that as 20 something sitting there because we usually think that means uh, judgmental. But the professor wisely said, I think what you're again, you mean to say is you're, you're a critical thinker. You know, you're critical, you're, you're precise. And he did. And Jurgen was a great guy. And uh, that's the opposite, though, of being critical, is, is being someone with good judgment, good judgment versus judgmental. 
I mean, that's the chasm that we're trying to, to build here. There are, there are two different kinds of people. Even in the body of Christ, you, you can come in the name of Christ and use Christian jargon and all kinds of, you know, Christian sort of veneer and facade around you in the name of, of being a discerning person, but really be a wolf in sheep's clothing and a critical spirit that can do a lot of damage within the church. Criticality rips the church apart. Negativity rips the church apart. It hurts people. It leaves people damaged. Discerning people, contrary to that, are unifiers, They see sins, they understand issues, but they take them head on, they confront them, they deal with them in love, and they unify. So it's not being optimistic uh, and someone who's who's sort of soft-coating sin and, and just ignoring things to be someone who's discerning. To be a discerning person sees sins, sees issues, addresses them, and helps unify the body of Christ. Contra to that, a critical person sees a sin, seizes upon that sin, talks about that sin, talks someone down about that sin, and then just leaves it there. Leaves it in a tailspin or a cul-de-sac where it's just going to fester, and it produces division within the church. Critical people are are to be um, confronted and helped. And Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 is doing that very thing. This is a very familiar set of verses I'm going to read. And it's not just a how to live a non-negative life sermon or how to address people's sin sermon in a procedural sense. This instead is a diagnostic to see whether you are a critical person or a unifying person? Are you a judgmental person? Or are you someone who uses good judgment? Because you need to be the latter. And the trajectory of each path it could not be farther apart. A person who's given over to judgmentalism is a person ultimately who's not a Christian. You can be judgmental and repent of that and, and grow as a Christian be a growing Christian. But if someone is given over to being a critical spirit, they're not a Christian versus someone who is discerning and growing in Christ. Let me just read the section of scripture here with that in mind. Verse one, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, and then attack you. This is a serious word. And this is Christ sort of coming down the home stretch on the Sermon on the Mount, bringing a very serious warning. It's the warning of warnings. The word judge can be used uh, as a as a verb positively and negatively, like I'm trying to present. It's the Greek word krino. It's used positively and negatively. Here, it's used in a bad way. This is the kind of judging you don't want to participate in. It's the kind of judging that will bring on judgment for yourself. And what I'm talking about here is a judgment that is for unbelievers. And I want to make the case that it's also for believers. There are two kinds of judgments 
that are set for people in the future. One for believers and one for unbelievers. I think as believers, we have ignored the accountability that God is going to give us one day at the Bema seat judgment. There is that judgment I'm going to describe to you in a minute. But there's also the great white throne judgment for unbelievers where they are cast in the lake of fire forever and ever. One judgment we desperately want to avoid, the other judgment we will not be able to avoid. But in both cases, we want to deal seriously with this warning not to be judgmental. Not to be judgmental. What does it mean to judge in a negative way? It means to ascend the pedestal of self-righteousness. It's taking the position of Lord over people where you're condemning people, rendering people hopeless. This is to be avoided at all costs. This is not avoiding it just so you'll have good days rather than bad days, a good life rather than a negative life. This is a determination verse in terms of how you will end up. Spiritually and eternally. It's a test. This is a test for your life. I do want to say this. Judgmentalism is an easy sin to fall into. Being critical or having a critical spirit is a common sin, even for believers. Uh, We regularly in the Kratz household have to deal with judgmentalism. We know each other's weaknesses very, very well, right? We have an age range that's pretty wide, and we have some kids that are pretty compressed in the same age group. However, when I talk about dealing with the sin of judgmentalism, I'm not just talking about my kids, talking about Judy. No, I'm talking about me, (laughs) but all of us. And we we set early on, and Judy really did um, set this up as a theme of our household. We're going to be a household of reconciliation. We're always going to be reconciling. We're not going to be perfect. We are going to fall down. We are going to have to deal with our tongues and our words and our attitudes, but we're going to always deal with things. We're not going to leave things to just sit there and fester. We're not going to do that. And we, so far, you know, 24 years of marriage, we're holding true to that theme in our household, and it's worked. It's very helpful. You'll have a scenario where a kid or one of us will say something under their breath, and then you have someone sitting over in the corner that's crying and and, you know, hurt. You have the person who caused the pain and the person for whom the pain has been caused. And this is where, let's say, for instance, Judy might step in and say, listen, I need to address you and, and bring the word of God to bear and confront you for that. That was a sin, what you just said. I heard it. We heard it. It's wrong. And you need to make that right. And then the kid will go over or the person will go over and say, please forgive me. I sinned and they will own it. But at that point, The thing is not done because then you have to deal with the person who's been hurt and that person's heart now is on the line. So the attention moves from the first person to the second person and the second person has to forgive. The second person has to likewise soften his or her heart and say, I realize you hurt me and now I'm forgiving you for what you did and I love you. I remember in marriage counseling, we had this mantra that was taught to us. It was, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I love you. And we used to, Judy and I joke about that, you know, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me, I love you. It's kind of a joke, but it's not. 
It's, it's a recipe for reconciliation where someone owns their sin, but then the other person is responsible to forgive that person of the, of the forgiveness that's being sought so that then you have reconciliation together. The process oftentimes gets short-circuited when the second person also needs to soften. The damaged person needs to heal Because without that, you have a problem. Oftentimes, what is brought to bear is something like this in that moment. You need to forgive your brother, your sister, your spouse. Why? Because we are recognizing together that Jesus has forgiven us so much more than we ever could have to forgive someone else. Right? We recognize the grace has been just given to us um, through the shed blood of Christ on such a level that we... We have to see that and we have to let go of our own hard-heartedness and forgive. You know, true Christians will go through this process over and over and over again. You know what it does for your own heart? It reminds you of the gospel. When you're hurt or you've hurt somebody and you reconcile, it reminds you of the gospel, reminds you of the grace of God, and it, it reaffirms that you are a Christian to your own heart over and over and over again. And when you don't do that, if you're stuck in a hard-hearted state, if you're grudge-bearing and unwilling to forgive, it could be that you are denying yourself the grace of the gospel. Either ultimately, as, as you might not be a Christian if you're doing that, right? You might never have been a Christian in the first place. But as a Christian, if you're, if you're doing this and unwilling to forgive right now, you could be denying yourself the blessing of God's grace in your life. That's actually what you're doing. So we don't want to harbor sin or hang on to things in criticality. We want to melt. True, true Christians know they will not ultimately be judged. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But false Christians or people who are not really Christians at all, who are faking themselves out, will deny themselves grace. What should be at work in their hearts? Well, this section of Matthew is talking about heart softening measures. It's uh, Jesus bringing the law of God to bear on the crowd that he's talking to. And he's talking to two kinds of people. He's talking to disciples who are following him, who are on the hillside gathered close by. And then you have the critical Pharisees who are standing on the periphery. He's confronting both and saying that as believers, you need to repent of being judgmental. Because a judgment day is coming for you. And it will be one that is accountability, but it's survivable. But then to Pharisees, he's confronting them as the hypocrites. And he's saying judgment day is coming for you. And if you don't repent, you are going to receive a judgment where you go forever into hell. He wants softening to happen with hearts. Remember in the Lord's Prayer, he says, forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors and also the golden rule is coming up in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to him. He's working in terms of the law, but in terms of how the law should um, should soften our hearts. He's differentiating between being judgmental and using good judgment here. All for the purpose of taking a spiritual gut check and seeing the trajectory of where you are going. This is what... Um, This is how I'll outline chapter 7 for you if you're wanting to take notes. Number one, it's judging versus judgment. Judging or judgmentalism is verses 1 to 5. And then we're going to see how to use good judgment with verse 6. So verses 1 to 5, judgmental people 
thrive on being critical. And this is what Jesus condemns. He's condemning this. And as I said before, no matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever, one day you will have and I will have my day in court with the Lord. Isn't that terrifying just to think about? People ignore passages like these, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. It's all going to like be put up on the big screen behind us, right? Terrifying. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built and the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. There is the sense of loss in that moment, not just of what we should have done, but loss over what we have done. Romans 14 speaks of this same thing. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14, 12. Therefore, let us not pass judgment. There's that same word. Don't judge each other. Don't pass judgment on one another any longer. Don't be a stumbling block. James 3, 1 says, um, let not many of you become teachers. um, For you know that we who teach will be, here's the word, judged with a stricter judgment. There's something coming. 2 Corinthians 7, where Paul confronted the Corinthians and he was so excited that they had repented. He was thanking God that they would not suffer more loss. That was the idea. So we have to bear this in mind. What would this look like for us as believers? I have no idea, but I do have a little window of what it might feel like. I'll tell you another story. This is a little bit of a storytelling morning, but... When I was 16, I was um, issued my driver's license, and it had a 90-day um, provisional. I'm not sure all the rules with that um, from then to what that means now, but all I knew is I could drive, and my parents wisely uh, gave me the keys to a brand-new 1987 Ford Mustang. It's very wise. And so I got that car, and second um, bit of wisdom was, was I was able to drive it to school um, early. And uh, so I drove it to school, and... I was going to take my friends home uh, from my high school. I parked it um, behind the school in, in a neighborhood with other teenagers where they were parking. And three friends got in the back seat, shoved in there. And they, again, another bit of wisdom, they very wisely looked at me and said, what will this thing really do? <laughs> I wanted to find out. So I took off. I floored it. Went about, I don't know, maybe 25 yards. And a cop was sitting right there and just stopped everything. Brought everything to a big stop, and, uh, and I was issued a ticket, and I was able to get the speed up so quickly that I was actually driving reckless that quickly. And so I was cited for reckless driving, which means I was having my day in court. So I show up. My dad's there. He's dressed in a suit next to me. I'm just ashen and just terrified walking in there, and there's other young teenage friends of mine around, and nobody's joking around because they all had been busted, as was I. And suddenly I'm standing before the judge in the courtroom, and uh, this judge, who was probably normal size, uh, took on a 10-foot-high sort of look with the robe, you know, filling the temple you know, type moment. The black robe was huge, and I was shrinking. Uh, I don't know how, but I was shrinking behind my table, and he was growing. And whatever he said to me as he was asking questions was very, very indicting. And so I'm a, you know, a puddle mess. And my dad basically said, he's already on restriction. We've done this, this, and this. And he's under judgment in the home. And so because of that, the, 
the judge extended me grace and lessened the citation to a regular speeding ticket rather than reckless, and life went on. But I never forgot that. It was terrifying, but I survived it. There was uh, the feel of loss in that moment. There was the humiliation of what I had done wrong. There was accountability served. But at the same time, there was grace. There was grace. And I think that's what heaven's court is going to look like. That's what court will look like for a believer. There's another kind of court that's coming, right? There's a court of consequence that will come for those who have not repented of their judgmentalism, who've not repented of their sins. I was met with grace and they will be met with the penalty of their sins. John 5, 29 speaks of a resurrection of life and a resurrection of death. And a lot of times we think of the resurrection only in terms of the positive side where believers were fit with the new body to worship the Lord. No more dying, no more crying, no more suffering, no more sickness, no more demons in heaven forever. And we love that. But we're also needing to be sobered by the fact that God brings a resurrection of judgment to, the, to everyone who does not believe. And after the thousand-year reign, there's a window of what that judgment day will look like for those who are unbelievers who are re- raised or resurrected to death. Re- Revelation 20, verses 11 and 15. I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, meaning there's no time anymore. Everything's silent. Just, just there it is. You're there with God. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. We're all sinners. We've all done it. It's just for us, Christ subsumed the the wrath of our sins on the cross. And for everyone else, they're accountable to pay for it forever. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up. The dead who were in them and they were judged. There's that word judged. Each one of them according to what they had done. Death and Hades were thrown in the lake of of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thrown. Hurled there forever. What's this sound like? Well, if you look down in your chapter, Matthew 7 verse 21. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, why did we not prophesy in your name? They're making a defense for themselves and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How do we avoid this? We want our day in court to be terrible and survivable, not this. We don't want it to sound like this. We don't want it to look like this. We want to avoid this at all costs. Well, the warning continues of chapter 7, if you look in verse 2 of chapter 7. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the measure for measure teaching of scripture. It's lex talionis, an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. How does this apply in this section? If you're judgmental and graceless, then one day when you stand before God, he will be your judge and there will be no grace. That's how that works. Measure for measure. 
If God changes your heart in this life while there's still time and you're, again, you're critical, you're a sinner, me too. But we look in the mirror and we say, I'm full of myself. Please forgive me for that. And I'm going to be gracious to people in this life. And guess what? You're extending mercy. And one day, the grace of God that invaded your life in this life, the grace of God will be waiting for you in heaven when you stand before God, who is your judge, but also your heavenly father. There's no condemnation who are in, for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not ultimately condemned. We're ultimately saved, even though we will be held to an account. It's the grace of God. If you're met with grace in this life, then you should expect to be met with grace in the next life. If you are offering damning judgment in this life, you should expect to be judged accordingly in the next life. It's just that simple. Well, how do we diagnose where we are? How do we get down to business here and figure out our condition? Because that's should be on all of our hearts and very important for us to know. This is the diagnostic. Look at verses three to five. This is the test that Jesus is giving all of us to see where we are spiritually. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Here's another rhetorical question. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? I mean, Jesus at this point is just incredulous. He's not offering a procedure here. He's offering a diagnostic with these rhetorical questions. He's wanting you to ask yourself, am I this person? Am I judgmental and stuck there? Am I blind to my own sin? Now, the speck here that's mentioned that, you know, someone is uh, trying to remove, it's brother to brother and you're, you're in a relationship with somebody. The word adolfoy here is here. It's brothers or a person who, who loves somebody. And you might believe you have the best intention to actually reach out to that person. So you're, you're completely unaware of your own critical spirit. You're completely unaware of your own hypocrisy. And you're doing it in the name of Christian service for a brother where you go to that brother or sister. You're going to a sister or a brother or sister. And you're going, I want to use a, a pair of tweezers and do a surgical remove of this, this problem in your life. You have a problem. That's the attitude. That's the disposition of criticality that's manifest here. That's what's going on. You see the problem. And if, somebody, if you've ever had a speck of dust in your eye or a, a bug fly in, you know you're blind, right? The, the tiniest bit of sawdust, you know, makes you do this and you can't even see. So the person obviously has a problem and you see it and you want to help that person. But Jesus, I think, using some humor here, says, uh, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? But you do not notice the log. This is a beam of timber, the beam of timber that is in your own eye. Now look up. You see these beams in this room? It's like one of those. Like that's in your eye. That's in your face. The Mack truck is in front of you. And you're trying, you're trying to help that person by getting around your own beam without addressing it. It's impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. It's impossible to do it. You are curly in the three stooges with the ladder trying to paint. And you're, you got the ladder here and you're knocking over paint cans and Moe and Larry and falling all around. You're a disaster. You're a bull in a china shop trying to do something in the name of Christian spirituality, trying to do something to be of help when really you're harming your own heart. You're faking yourself out. That's what he's saying. 
It's the beam of judgment. It's having a gigantic problem that's, that's going unaddressed where you're trying to address other people really as a spiritual cover-up. You can't see around your own issues. So what is the beam here? What is the beam of timber? I, I want to believe it's found very clearly in verse 5. What is the beam? The beam is Jesus' indictment. You hypocrite. The beam is our own pride. It's our own self-delusion where we think we are who we are not. We're playing the role of Lord. We're climbing the pedestal of our own self-righteousness, trying to solve people's problems when we have no business of doing that. We have the beam that we have to deal with that's in our eyes. It's a hypocrite. It's a person who's a play actor that's fallen prey to their own pride. Um, You think of Satan's pride in Isaiah chapter 14, the five I wills, I will ascend, I will ascend. I'm better than you, God. I'm better than you, God. What hubris, right? But it's the same sin of pride that we find in our own hearts. It's the Pharisee of Luke 18, 11, standing by himself in the temple. And he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. You say, I would never do that. I mean, just, I mean, you, again, privately, be honest with yourself. You look around your own heart, man, I'm glad I'm not that person. I am so much better than that person. I mean, if you think about God's holiness is up here, and we're just all down here like little ants. I mean, we're, 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 not, we're not really better than each other at all. We're just all down here in our own sins, but by the grace of God, there go I, right? And just pick a category. We could fall prey to any of them, any of them. And we play act with ourselves, right? We're hypocrites who talk ourselves out of our own sins or our own intentions, We should be those who are mortifying the flesh, being honest with ourselves, killing and starving our own flesh and saying, Lord, forgive me of that. And I want to esteem others higher than myself, myself, and I want to deal with my own sins so that then I can see clearly and help someone else. People who are dangerously divisive, again, who don't deal with their sins, they they have two ill effects that happen from that. One, they wreck the body of Christ. They create all kinds of doubts and people doubt each other. People are whispering about each other. It tears the body of Christ apart. And the second thing remaining in your own hypocrisy does or being divisive or critical does, it renders you useless to help other people out of their sins. It renders you ineffective. The devil wants you to stay critical because you can't help people out of their own sins. It's dangerous to be... Divisive. That's why Titus 3.10 says to remove someone who stirs up division. At warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with them. If someone stirs up division, they need to be dealt with swiftly and decisively. You say, well, I think I, this might be me. I might be critical. So what do I do? Well, verse 5 tells you. It says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Take it out. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Deal with your hypocrisy. Jesus is drawing the line here. It's the device. It's the decisive line where he's saying, how do you want to be judged ultimately? Judge not lest you be judged. Which kind of judgment do you want? Do you want heaven's court, the court of grace? Or do you want heaven's court, the court of consequence? 
Do you want the Bama Seed judgment or the great white judgment? Believers will own their hypocrisy and they'll act on it and against it. They'll upbraid themselves. They'll look in the mirror and they'll say, I need to get over myself and repent and avoid judgment that is damning. Unbelievers will stay blind. They're blind and they'll be blind to their own hypocrisy. They'll just sit in it. They'll enjoy their own hypocrisy. They'll stay critical. They want to be that way. It's like feeding on your own self, feeding on your own flesh. But when you do repent, what's beautiful is the end of verse 5. Then you will see clearly. This is what's lost when you don't repent. You can't see clearly. You can't help somebody out. But when you got one of these beams that you actually say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me for my own hypocrisy. Forgive me for my sin. I know you forgave me and you saved me. Now, Lord, I'm coming back to the cross and I'm saying, please forgive me yet again. Uh, You know, you never lost your salvation, but you need to come back to the cross and say, Lord Jesus, I'm laying down my pride. I'm convicted of my sins and I want to help people. And when that is dealt with, then you can see something clearly. The only real reason to ever think about someone else's sin is because you want to help them out of it. Think about people walking in the woods. We're all going to be walking in the woods. Well, I won't. I'll get lost. But people that hike, no. It's true, though. I can't get out of it. But all that to say, people who are in the woods could fall prey to someone's trap that they have laid for an animal, right? You step in the bear trap, and it's got you. You can't get out. You can't get yourself out, right? It's just like that with sin. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The whole point is, and I remember confronting someone that I love dearly, sitting there. It was an intervention. Uh, and my wife and I were talking to a dear friend, and we're just saying, you're, it's like you're in a bear trap. Your foot is caught. And they couldn't see it. But it's like you're, you're just you're caught. You can't get yourself out of it. You need to repent. You need to see it. And that person over the course of time ultimately did. It's incredible. And it's like the trap. They, this person allowed us to just pull the, the trap open enough for the foot to come free. And the person was able to grow, able to know the Lord. That's the beauty of and the payoff of actually repenting of your own pride it's it's being able to restore people in a spirit of restoration all right so this is the warning of being critical judge not this is the warning of being judgmental versus using good judgment using good judgment is captured in a unique way in verse six in verse six look at this verse I'm using judgment here as a synonym for discernment. Jesus is taking a sharp turn here to talk about what it looks like to genuinely be discerning, to be someone who understands what to do in scenarios where people are caught in their sins. Verse 6 is where Jesus is actually assuming you've dealt with the beam, the timber beam in your own life. You've dealt with your pride already. You see clearly someone's sin. You, you see what's going on and you know you need to address it one way or the other. And Jesus is giving a second warning here for how not to address people 
in sin. Look at this. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What's he saying here? He's actually saying that there is a time to confront people's sins and to remove a speck. And then there is a time to just let somebody alone for perhaps a long time. Maybe you've tried to reach somebody. Maybe you've, you've seen some warnings that um, are showing you that it's dangerous actually to approach somebody with the word of God. And you need to use good judgment and good discernment as to whether to approach them or not. It's using wise judgment. I mean, the Bible does say we're supposed to use judgment and to go after people and to help people in the body of Christ. But it also warns against not approaching certain people with the word of God because you might be in danger, endangering them of becoming hardened in their own hearts. Listen to 1 Corinthians five eleven. It says, now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This is a person who is a so-called Christian. He bears the name of brother, but he's not actually a Christian. It says, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's healthy separation. That's pulling back from someone so that they can be left within their own sins. It says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul's talking of himself saying, I'm, I'm supposed to, when people are put outside the church or are understood to not be a Christian, they're given over to their own sins. Sometimes you need to let them play out their scenario just like the prodigal son did where he ended up, you know, with the pigs, with the swine pots, coming to the end of himself. Sometimes that's the wise path, and you have to use discernment in that case. But then, verse 12, it says, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. First Corinthians 6, 1 to 6, speaks of how one day we will judge people, um, in, judge people who are unbelievers, Um, In the end times, it says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law, go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, don't take Christians to court. You can deal with sins within the church. Verse 2, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? That's in the end times. We will be alongside the angels in the separation of the sheep and goats judgment. And if the world is being judged by you, are you, not incompetent, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? So all of this is saying that within the body of Christ, we are to show sincere judgment, discerning people's sins. But there is a time to do it and a time not to do it. Matthew 7 verses 15 to 20 talks about discerning people's fruit. You'll we'll know people by their fruits. We'll know when people are receptive When people are genuinely believers needing help, look at this. We will know when people are rejecting truth. We'll know when people are dangerously hardened in their hearts and we need to sort of back off. That's an important piece of the puzzle in the Christian life. Because I think sometimes we feel like constrained, like we have to share the word of God with everybody no matter what state that they're in. But we have to discern whether or not somebody's open, whether somebody's rejecting whether somebody is, is sinfully exposing the fact that they're not even a real Christian at all and they're outside of the church, 
How do we approach them? That's what Jesus is saying here. Use good judgment. Don't be judgmental. Don't look down on people. Don't be like a child with with the Bible and using it like a play toy and just shoving the word of God down people's throats. There are people who, in the name of Christian spirituality, will attack you know, heresies, they'll bring up issues in the, the broader church and just beat things down and they're hardening their own hearts by doing that and hardening other people's hearts, you know, in these Christian rants, you see them on YouTube and things. That's not Christian spirituality. I remember one time Judy and I, we, early on in our marriage, we would sit and drink coffee at Barnes and Noble and talk and hang out and and this, uh, this guy, I was studying for my ordination exam. He would come up and he would ask me questions. So you're studying for your ordination. You're studying for ordination. Tell me about it. And he would talk theology. But eventually after about three months of that where he would come up and come up and come up, you could tell all he was doing was just acting judgmental. And he would tear people down and, and be negative on the church. And eventually I just said, we can't talk about these things anymore. We're going to end it and just cut it off right now. For that guy's own sake, I cut it off. And I think we have to be careful with that. Sometimes things can backfire on us. Look at verse 6. It says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Let's say trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Dogs here are wild animals. It's not talking about lap dogs or like our dogs that are manageable, that aren't going to bite you. We're talking about pack animals. We're talking about something like hyenas or like having a dangerous, unpredictable moose in the yard. That's what he's saying here. There's something that can backfire on you if you force feed truth to people. Don't throw, uh, don't give to dogs what is holy. Well, what would be holy here would be the Old Testament sacrifice, um, the picture of meat being put on the altar and a priest is offering that to the Lord. Well, in Old Testament law, the the remaining parts of the meat that were not burned would be given sometimes to the priest or to the family members to eat. But there was a set-apart um, piece of meat or slab of meat that was holy unto the Lord. And you would never take that and throw it to the dogs. The dogs are like our Wednesday um, week ravens that come and scavenge the trash. You just wouldn't take what's holy and throw it to the scavenging dogs. You wouldn't go into the offering box and reach down and grab dollar bills or, or the bills out of that and paper the bottom of your, your dog kennel with with the offering that had been given to the Lord. It should be repugnant to us. So in the same way, we should be grossed out. We don't want to shove the word of God into someone's heart when they could turn on us. It says, do not throw your pearls before pigs. Pigs here are not farm animals. It's not talking about ceremonial pigs or anything like that. The pigs here are wild boar. It's the idea that you don't want to be walking along one day and be ambushed by a bunch of animals around you that could trample you. And the scenario is, is the idea that you've got something precious in your pocket, like your, your savings, and, and you have pearls, and to save your skin, you're throwing the pearls at the wild animals to save you. It's ludicrous, right? What are the animals going to do? They'll just stomp over that, and they'll attack you anyway. So it's, again, it's the idea that you have the preciousness of the word of God, and you just want to be careful in how you wield it. You do. So the final warning here of verse 6 is, is a second warning that coheres with the first one. Don't be judgmental and also don't lack judgment. Don't be judgmental. Don't be hard-hearted towards people and don't be someone who lacks judgment where you're shoving the word of God down people's throats and hardening their hearts when they're rejecting it. 
And by the way, they might turn on you. That's the point. Sometimes the best thing to do is not say anything at all. Remember Jesus, when reviled, he didn't revile in return. He just kept entrusting himself to the Lord. So let me end with this. How do you deal with the, the big beam in your eye? How do you deal with it? How do you repent of that? I kind of put it together in my mind this way. One beam will be defeated by two beams. It's the two beams that create the cross. The one beam is dismantled by two beams. The one beam is called pride, and the two beams represent grace. It's a two-beam solution. Christ dealt the blow against our pride at the cross to bring our personal judgments under his care. And we need to do that while there's still time. Because guess what? All of you, all of us are going to have our day in court. And you'll either stand alone or you'll be in Christ and you'll have a defense attorney like no other, an advocate who is Christ Jesus.